Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for your kindness to us in allowing us this meeting location and for the freedom that we have to read your word and to hear it proclaimed, to worship you in song and to give our praises to you in public. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is for us to claim your name for ourselves, to be called by your name, Christians, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the saints of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts and our minds to be attentive to your word. And we ask, Father, that you would help us never to be ashamed of what you have done and what you have said and what you have promised. But rather, Father, we pray that we would delight in your words, that we would love to read them, that we would give ourselves day by day to reading, to meditating on, to teaching others your law, your statutes, your commandments, and your promises, Father. Father, may we not grow weary in reading Psalm 119, but may it cause our heart to sing. And Father, may that singing overflow into our lips from our hearts so that we cannot help but praise your name we cannot help but cry out what a gracious and glorious Heavenly Father we have who hears our prayers, who answers our cries of distress, who stoops down and is near to us. Heavenly Father, may your people, may your name May it all be glorified according to your power and your holiness. May our actions, Father, not detract from you. May they not be hypocritical. May the world not watch and say, yeah, that's Christians always pretending to be good, but not actually good. Father, may our love for you and for one another be evident to the watching world. May they glorify our Father in heaven. Father, we pray that you would help us not to turn aside to the left or to the right, but to walk according to the way that you have laid before us. Help us not to be afraid, Father, to walk the path that you have promised to be with us on. Help us not to be fearful of what others would think of us. Help us not to be afraid of men who pressure us to be wicked, to join them in bloodshed, to profit at the expense of others. But Father, instead, may our 
love for you and our concern and love for our neighbors cause us to be people whose actions and words are filled with loving kindness. Regardless of what the threats are. Regardless of what the promises, the things of this world that we could have are. Now, Father, we pray that your people would be strong and courageous. We pray, Father, that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we would fear no evil. And that we would remember the saints and prophets who have gone before us. And Father, may we look to you, knowing that you are the one who will carry us through to the end. Do forgive our nation, Father, for the bloodshed that we have caused and that we continue to commit, particularly, Father, in the murder of innocent little ones through abortion. Father, we confess that these innocent little ones are easy for us to forget and to ignore because they are not ours right now, because we cannot see them, because we cannot hear them crying out. But Father, we know that you remember them all. And we know that you have promised that you will pour out your wrath on those nations that shed the blood of the innocent. And Father, we do desire that justice would be done. And yet we pray, Father, that you would bring about repentance in this land. That you would continue to be patient with us for our lack of concern, Father. Help us to be concerned. Father, we pray that you would bring about repentance from our hatred of children as a nation. Father, we pray that you would bring about repentance from the love of prosperity at the expense of murdering others. Father, may we not take our ease in our wealth, but may we always remember that all these things are from you. That just as you have given them to us, so you can take them away. May that cause us always to look to you and to remember you. To remember that you are watching. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We read 2 Kings chapter 9, and in that chapter, how many people died 
Any of you kids pay attention? How many people died? Nobody wants to answer today. Yeah? How many? I got two. What are their names? Jezebel and... Can anybody help her? Yeah? Ahaziah, but Jehu did not die. No, Jehu didn't die. But we got one more. You remember someone else? Ahab Ahab uh, was already dead. But it was his it was his son who died. Yeah. This is a this is a uh, a chapter that is um scary. It's a chapter that's scary because we just have three people dying, but it's quite shocking. It's quite sudden. Now the three people we had uh Ahab's son, okay, Joram, and we had Jezebel, and we had the king who was king in Israel, and that was Ahaziah. Okay, those are the three people who died. So two kings and the mother and mother-in-law of the two kings. Think about that. Let's remind ourselves quickly of what happened in this text. The first ten verses, you had Jehu, anointed king of Israel. And he was instructed, as he was anointed, to strike the whole house of Ahab his master, including Jezebel, and every male. Now, if any of you had the King James Version, you would know that this is one of the places where the NASB decided that they really couldn't write what God actually wrote. It doesn't say every male person. It says, he who pisseth against the wall. There's only a few places where that is used in Scripture. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty earthy, isn't it? He who pisseth against the wall. And yeah, it means males. It means every male person. Because... They're the only ones who pee standing up against the wall. And that's what it's meant to bring to mind for us. That's why those words are used. Now, I ask you why in the world, in a chapter where you have a man anointed and told to kill the king, to kill the neighboring king, to kill the king's mother, why in the world would translators be too embarrassed 
to translate he who pisseth against the wall. That's not the embarrassing thing in this chapter. That's not the shocking thing in this chapter. I'm afraid that it's just an indication that we are ashamed of the words of God here in this passage. Why should we be ashamed of the words of God, though? God is avenging the blood of his servants that Ahab and Jezebel murdered. Naboth, you remember when he was murdered when, for his field, right? And here we learn that not just Naboth, but his sons were murdered too. And of course, if you think about it, that makes sense because it was the inheritance, right? That's what Ahab wanted. So that's the first 10 verses. Then verses 11 through 20, Jehu receives immediate, sudden support for his conspiracy. It's, it's really quite sudden. He's anointed. He walks back out of the room. And the guys that he's with, the other commanders are like, hey, what did he say? Oh, you know. No, he don't. What did he say? Yeah, he said, I'm king. And immediately... They're placing the honor on him as king. And it doesn't just stop there. We see him speaking to the, the messengers that are sent out by King Joram. Right? You remember the messengers are sent out? And he says, what do, we, what do you have to do with peace? Turn behind me. And they join his band, just like that. Verses 21 through 26, Jehu starts fulfilling God's judgment on Ahab by killing Jehoram, or Joram, Ahab's son. And then verses 27 through 29, we see further judgment on the house of Ahab through the assassination of Ahaziah, king of Judah, son-in-law of Ahab. Remember last chapter that he was described as walking in the way of the house of Ahab. And then verses 30 through 37, as the chapter concludes, Jehu fulfills God's judgment on Jezebel. She calls him Zimri. Did you guys notice that? He's not Zimri. He's Jehu. So who in the world is Zimri? If you remember back, Zimri was another king who killed his master, just like Jehu just killed his master. So Zimri is an insult, not just because he rebelled and killed his master, but it's an insult because he only ruled for one week. It's not exactly who you want to be called as you're claiming to be king for the fir on the first day, right? She's saying, yeah, well... You may have killed him, but you're not going to last. Turns out she's wrong. She does die, and she dies just as God said she would. Now, what's going on in this chapter is that God is judging the Israelites just like he promised Elijah he would, using exactly the men he said he would use. 
Now, we aren't done seeing God's judgment on Israel through Jehu. <clears throat> but what we do see in this, in this chapter in particular is that God's judgment is sudden. People are eating and drinking, and then boom, it comes. We also see that God's judgment is horrifying. You can't read this chapter without being horrified at what it looks like when God's wrath is poured out just on three people. Getting shot in the back, thrown into a field and not buried. Getting thrown out of a window and then trampled by horses and then eaten by dogs and not buried. These are horrifying judgments. But the last thing that we see about God's judgment is that it is comforting to his people. You cannot read this chapter and forget about Naboth. Naboth, who Ahab and Jezebel conspired to murder together with his sons. Why? Because the chapter reminds us of them specifically. Innocent people were murdered, and God said, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And then he appoints Jehu and says, Now, shed blood, Jehu. Shed blood. Justly. Carrying out my judgment that I have commanded. And so Jehu, in this chapter is a picture of the coming judgment of Christ. Christ's judgment will come suddenly. Matthew 24, we read, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the coming of Christ for the second judgment will be sudden. That's the promise. And that's what we see pictured here with Jehu. It will also be horrifying, and it's horrifying for us to think about God's coming judgment. All the judgments recorded in the Bible are just small pictures of the great and terrible day of the Lord, as it's called. Joel 2, we read, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the horror of that judgment. Think of the fire and the brimstone. Think of the flood, as we just read about. Or the waters rushing down and drowning Pharaoh's army. Or the extermination of the Amorites. All of these judgments are things that are hard for us to even think about without being sick. It's horrifying. God's judgment is horrifying.
For behold, we read in Malachi, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. You guys think it's hot out there? I know it's warm. It's not even a hot summer day yet. You guys are just not used to it yet. Wait till it's 95 and the sun's beating down. And even then, behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. So you look out in the grass, and the day is hot, and you see the heat rising on the asphalt, right? And suddenly the grass just catches on fire. That's the picture that is being described for us, the chaff. The chaff is just the stalks of the grass, right? The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now the next verses remind us of the third point. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And so the coming judgment of Christ is comforting to those who are in Christ. Yes, it's horrifying to think about God's wrath being poured out. Yes, it's a terrible, scary thought. But those who are in Christ will skip about like calves. Have you guys ever seen cows when spring comes and there's calves and they start skipping? If you haven't, look it up on YouTube. It, it's, a, it's a fun time. Christ's judgment is coming. And Miriam sang a song praising God for destroying the Egyptian army. As horrifying as it is to watch, Miriam wrote a song praising God for causing that to happen. Why? Because his judgment will be avenging the blood of his servants. He loves and cares for his people and he doesn't miss anything that happens to them. Listen to these passages reminding us of how much God cares for his children. Matthew 18.6 But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Why would it be better? That's a horrifying thought to have that happen, isn't it? That's better than to be under God's judgment for what you've done to one of the little ones who believes in him. Or Luke 18, 7 and 8. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? 
I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And then we read in Revelation, when the Lord, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So these are people who have died because they put their faith in Christ Jesus. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. So God says to those who are waiting vindication, wait patiently until the rest of the people who are going to be martyrs have joined you. And then... I will avenge you. Now, I know we can be tempted to deny that God's judgment is good because we see how horrifying it is, right? We can look at what happened in Canaan as the people of the land went, were taken out according to God's command. We can look at what happened at the flood. We can look at what happened to the Egyptian Army, and we can think, now that's brutal. And that's really very tempting to us today. In fact, everybody who rejects the death penalty has rejected the judgment of God as being too horrifying, too wicked, too evil. You understand? Because God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And we say, no, God, that's too, that's too hard. That's too harsh. It's not helpful. It's not accomplishing anything. And so we sit and we look at Ahab and Jezebel and we think, why in the world should they be killed for their sin? Can't we just, can't we just bring them to correction? Can't we bring them to true repentance? Does it not comfort you that God remembers Naboth and his sons, though? Doesn't it bring you joy that God has not forgotten them? God's judgment is good, and we must rejoice in it. Yes, it's shocking, but we must not then say it's wicked. Now, it's true that the more you have suffered at the hands of the wicked, the more you have to rejoice over when God judges the wicked, right? Think about that. You know, if you've been hurt by somebody and they're punished for it, you personally have more of a reason to think, oh yeah, yeah, I'm glad that they're getting what they deserve. And yet none of us are martyrs. How do I know? Well, because we're all here. Right? We're all alive still. Maybe I should say none of us are martyrs yet. And so it may be easy for us to think, well, I don't know 
I don't know why God's judgment should be comforting to me. I'm not one of the ones that's in white under the throne. I'm not one of the martyrs. In fact, sometimes it doesn't even feel like I'm suffering for Christ at all. And to that I want to say, first of all, we are commanded to pray for our rulers so that we will be able to live quiet, peaceful lives in obedience to God. And we can give thanks when he answers those prayers. We ought to give thanks when he answers those prayers. But remember also that oppression is likely coming. And ask yourself how you will respond when it does. Some of you are being oppressed for your faith. And sometimes our oppression isn't from men directly, but from Satan. Even including physical sufferings, which he uses in an attempt to cause you to lose heart. Just because you don't have somebody trying to kill you for your faith does not mean that you are not suffering for Christ. And so it's at the judgment that we are finally vindicated. Those who have put their faith in Christ are vindicated. Everybody else goes into the fire. What does it mean to be vindicated? Who is vindicated? The innocent. Aborted babies are vindicated. Little ones that have been killed. They and their blood are vindicated according to the Lord. The martyrs, those who have died for the sake of Christ and his gospel. The prophets who were killed and rejected. The righteous. You are vindicated. You say, well, but I'm not any of those. Fine. Your faith is vindicated. When the judgment comes, your faith is vindicated because your faith is where you are saying, I believe. I believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the converse, that he will judge the wicked. And when you believe it, you live according to it. And that's why I say it's at the judgment that your faith is vindicated, because that is when God separates the sheep from the goats. That is when, all of a sudden, there's two groups of people. What does it look like to be a part of the people of Christ? You live a certain way. You live according to his commandments. It requires faith to fight against sin. It requires faith to sacrifice your time. It requires faith to give to the church. It requires faith to pray. It requires faith to have children and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And all of these things will be vindicated. 
And it's a horror to think of anybody facing the judgment who will not be vindicated because they do not have faith. And so we call them to repentance and faith, and we wait on the Lord to be vindicated ourselves. You don't want to ignore the horror of the judgment of God. You don't want to ignore it so that you will be one of those who is of the faithful on that day. But you also don't want to ignore it because you want to remember that's what's at stake for your neighbors, your co-workers, your sons and daughters, your family members. And so don't turn in shame away from declaring the judgment of God. But let the horror of that and the fearfulness of that cause you to call others to be among the faithful who will be vindicated. Let's pray. Father, when we hear of the terrible death of Jezebel, when we hear of the command that you gave to Jehu. It's easy for us to judge him for his violence. It's easy for us to judge you, Father. And yet, Father, we do praise you that you will vindicate our faith, that you will vindicate your people, that you will vindicate the innocent that the blood of every righteous man from Abel to Berechiah, Father, you have not forgotten. Now, Father, we pray that we would not hate your judgment, but that we would rejoice in it, knowing that it is on that day that our faith will have been shown to be true, to be worth it. Father, we pray that we would remember these things with joy and gladness and proclaim them to the world so that others may be saved from the horror of this wrath to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.